Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you will calm our minds, whether we're here in the room or, or watching through a screen. We pray that you will open our minds to hear you speak, that you will challenge our hearts and our minds to follow you more closely and to love you more dearly each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of our sermon today is God is Jealous. Slightly odd sort of thing to ascribe to God, isn't it? Jealousy. We normally think of jealousy as a, as a very bad thing, something of a negative personal trait. The word jealousy is certainly not something that that immediately springs to mind when we're thinking about the character of God. In fact, to say that God is jealous, well, it sounds so wrong. It it's almost seems like an offensive thing to say. So how can God, who is holy, who is perfect, ever be jealous? Well, to start with, Let's begin with the familiar, jealousy in people. Indeed, for men and women, jealousy can cause a great deal of harm, unless it's very carefully harnessed. I certainly experienced bullying when I was at school, and that would have been linked in some way to jealousy. Well, in case you hadn't noticed, the Olympic Games are now underway. And in the opening ceremony, the athletes take an oath which begins with the words, we promise to take part in these Olympic Games, respecting and abiding by the rules and in the spirit of fair play, inclusion and equality. Certainly jealousy of one athlete towards another does not contribute towards a spirit of fair play, inclusion, and equality. There was a notorious case of this that was clearly driven by jealousy in the lead-up to the Winter Olympics back in 1994. I remember it as a, as a child. There was a long-standing rivalry between two great figure skaters. One was called Tonya Harding, and then there was the one person who potentially barred her way to the Olympics, Nancy Kerrigan. In January 1994, Tonya Harding and her then-husband engaged a hitman. He was to attack Kerrigan's knees with a club so that she was unable to compete in an event a few days later, which would be necessary for her to qualify for the Olympics, so they thought, leaving the way open for her to get into the team, Harding. Well, Harding then won the championship and qualified, but the truth came out. Harding was stripped of all her other awards. She was permanently barred from the sport. And these two former roommates have 
never spoken to each other since. Such is the potential destructive power of unchecked jealousy on careers and relationships. And there are examples of destructive impact of jealousy all through the Bible. As soon as there were people and there was sin, there was jealousy. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, Cain kills Abel out of jealousy. Cain was the firstborn with all the advantages in that society that being the firstborn would have given him. Yet Abel, who was the more marginalised one, he had something that Cain wanted for himself too. He wanted God's favour. And the fact that Abel had it and Cain did not made Cain angry. So out of jealousy, he killed his brother. In Genesis chapter 30, Rachel is jealous of her sister Leah battling for the affections of their husband, Jacob. In Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers resented their father Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph. So they sold him and they faked his death to their father. In 1 Samuel, the jealousy of King Saul towards David came to dominate his life and his reign And it drove him to try and kill David. And then if you move forward into the New Testament, it was jealousy that drove the Jewish authorities to hand Jesus over to Pilate with demands to crucify him. And such jealousy can often be found in the New Testament letters. It was in the early church When Paul wrote to the young churches like those in Rome and in Corinth, he listed jealousy amongst one of those sins that was destroying the church fellowship. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, he describes the fruit of the sinful nature. And jealousy is a key component of such ungodly living. The acts of flesh are obvious, sexual immorality impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. Paul robustly concludes in verse 21 of Galatians 5, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so it's continued throughout the Bible And throughout all human history, the sin of destructive jealousy. And it's hard. We all know that within ourselves as well. So how can God, who is perfect and sinless, ever be jealous? Yet many times throughout scripture, God reiterates that he is a jealous God. So the jealousy of God must be something very different, be of a different kind from our own destructive jealousy. Same word in English, but it must be something very different as a concept. 
So to understand this, we will start in Exodus chapter 20 that Marjorie read a little bit earlier. It's the first two of the Ten Commandments. In verses 5 and 6, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shan't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. In other words, an image of anything that's already created, created things. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here God gives his people the command to put him first and to not make any other idols. And the reason he gives is that he is, by nature, a jealous God. And this is the first reference to the jealousy of God in the Bible. Then if you move on to Exodus chapter 32, while Moses was up the mountain, the people in their wilderness journey became impatient. We don't know what's happened to this chap Moses, they said. Come on, let us make our own gods who will go before us. So the people indulged in sinful idolatry. They took off all their gold earrings, they melted them down, they cast a golden calf statue. They bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. God was angry and so was Moses. Moses threw down and smashed the original stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on, signifying how they'd been broken. God's people had broken the covenant, the agreement that had been made with God back in Exodus 20, that they would worship only him. Then in Exodus 34 which we also read, God graciously agrees to re-establish the broken covenant. It's grace to the people. As in the original covenant, God repeats his command against idolatry. He forbids them from following the ways of the nations around them. They're not to worship any other God. God tolerates no rivals. Exodus 34, verses 13 and 14 says, Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, all these items of worship of idols. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. These verses repeat that God is a jealous god, but they actually add that one of the names of God is jealous. Now, when the Bible speaks about the name, one of the names of God, it's revealing something that's part of his core nature, his essence. Then rolling on, 40 years later, after many trials, many failures in the wilderness, we read about a new generation of God's people, finally preparing to enter the promised land. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 to 15. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God. And his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Moses urges the people not to forget the covenant that the Lord has made with them. That when they arrive finally in the promised land, they're not to engage in idolatry. Or this will result in a response of jealous anger from God. And then in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 19 and 20, finally the people have crossed the river, they've settled in the promised land. And now Joshua, the successor to Moses, is himself at the end of his life. And he reminds people of those self-same truths. He says, now fear the Lord, serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped and serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he'll turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been so good to you. Joshua tells them, God is holy, God is good, and God is jealous. There's clearly something so utterly different about God's holy jealousy compared with our oh-so-destructive, sinful human jealousy. In the human context, destructive jealousy is a combination of anger, fear, and greed. It's rooted in us comparing ourselves with other people. Perhaps a clearer word for this destructive jealousy is envy. We all compare ourselves and our circumstances with other people, other people who are around us. And social media has taken this to another level in recent years, especially for young people, comparing so easily just on an image, their clothes, their hair, their figure, their appearance. And we all do it in different ways. Such human jealous envy could be defined this way. Resenting someone for having something you do not have, but you want. Jealous envy. Resenting someone for having something you don't have, but you want. And maybe even wanting them no longer to have it because you haven't got it. That's actually the fruit of the Tenth Commandment, which forbids you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's car, dare we say, you shall not covet your neighbor's personality, you shall not covet your neighbor's abilities. Yes, you shall not even covet your neighbor's church ministry. But we don't become jealous of other people for everything they have. Here's an example. I would not be jealous of a professional sportsman, say, for their football skills. Why? Because 
although I quite enjoy football, I've never been that good at football. And I've never aspired to be a footballer. I could, however, envy another popular preacher that gets lots of speaking engagements because, well, that is something I do aspire to do. Or I might secretly envy someone in church who seems to make relationships really easily. Someone who always has just the right words to speak in a situation, yet somehow does it without talking too much, because I wish that was me. In contrast, the jealousy of God is the complete opposite of this human jealousy. Because to say that God was envious is ridiculous. Because that would imply that God was lacking something. But we know that God lacks nothing. God is complete, so God couldn't be envious. No, while the jealousy of men and women is us wanting to get something we don't have and resenting someone else who has it, the jealousy of God is God wanting to keep what he already does have and he's not prepared to lose. And that brings out the real difference between human jealousy and the jealousy of God. We want to get something we don't have and resent other people if they have it. God wants to keep what he already does have and he is not prepared to lose. The jealousy of God is so different. The word in the Old Testament that we use to translate jealous is a word that's used only to describe God. It's clearly associated with another word, that means zeal. It indicates that God is is passionate, God is fervent. In a sense, God is jealous means God is zealous. And did you notice something about all those Old Testament passages we mentioned in which God was declared as jealous? They all took place in the context of idolatry by his people. While idolatry involving the worship of physical statues does exist in some cultures still today, maybe not so much in ours, idolatry is something far more far-reaching than just worshipping physical statues. God's created all of us as worshipping beings. It's very much in our DNA to worship someone or something. The question is, who or what will you give your worship Two. In Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, the Apostle Paul says, People do inherently know that God exists, but they choose to suppress the truth and not to worship Him. But then, as humans, we have to find something to worship. There can't be a worship vacuum in any of our lives. So, We exchange the worship of the glorious creator for the worship of something else that's merely created. Is that you? On reflection, do you hold something else other than God alone? Just that bit too close to your heart. Possessions, house, car, stuff. Have they become idols? Or perhaps it's people, children, grandchildren, friends. Have they become idols 
or hobbies and abilities, or perhaps it is your career, have any of these become idols? Yes, maybe it's even success within Christian ministry, within mission, within the church, that's become an idol. In Exodus 20, the first two commandments make it very, very clear. God tolerates no rivals whatsoever. You shall have no other gods before me. You shan't make for yourself any idol. Does that mean God's some sort of egomaniac? Does he need our attention? Of course not. First of all, the Lord is the only true and living God. He just is. So the Lord wanting us to worship him alone, to keep him at the centre of our lives, is simply God wanting our lives to reflect the truth of what is. He doesn't want us just to live out a lie. The Lord alone is worthy of that worship. He wants us to understand and to recognise and worship him for who he truly is. And he has the right to be jealous. Let's call it to be zealous for that worship. It was this jealous anger that Jesus expressed so powerfully when he cleared out the money changers in the temple. Zeal, same word, jealousy, for my father's house has consumed me says the gospel writer about that incident, quoting from one of the Psalms about Jesus. And second, if you look at the language of the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20, in establishing the covenant, in establishing this agreement with his people, God isn't just creating some cold rule book in the Ten Commandments. Don't read them that way. God is using the warm language of love and of care in writing those out for us. You see, the covenant is more like a marriage. God promises to be faithful to them and he expects his people to be faithful to him in return. The commandments may be read like our marriage vows to him. It's a relationship of mutual possession We are his, and he is ours. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. In fact, the story of the whole Bible is a story about God's jealous love, his zealous love to raise up a people for his own possession. Throughout the Old Testament, God calls Israel his wife. The book of Hosea, for example, is a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to her divine husband. And God's jealous love for his wife, his people, and for his own glory. And then in the New Testament, God broadens out this act of grace globally, to the church. In Jesus, he calls the church the bride of Christ. So that's how the jealous God is looking at us today. 
So for those of us who are Christians, those who are in Christ, who are married to Christ, who are the bride of Christ, he expects three things. He expects to be our, that we will be, that he will be our priority above everyone and everything else. He expects to receive our fidelity, to be our one and only true love with our eyes set only on him. And he seeks our intimacy to be held more closely to our hearts than anything else. Now, for those of us who are married, these are the same things we expect of our spouse. No husband or wife of, of integrity wants to share their spouse with any substitute. And a husband or wife feels righteous jealousy and anger if their spouse betrays their devoted love by being unfaithful or by abandoning them. In the same way, if we allow our relationship with God to fall short of these three things, priority, fidelity, and intimacy, that incites God's angry love through betrayal. As we finish, let's think about the pictures in the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 3, we read about the church in Laodicea. The church is materially wealthy and proud, but spiritually poor and nauseatingly lukewarm. Christ wants them to be spiritually healthy and active for him. The picture draws upon the local geography. The neighbouring town of Hierapolis to the north had really useful hot water springs. The town of Colossae to the south had refreshing cold water springs. In contrast, Laodicea had neither. It had no springs of its own. It received its water by aqueduct, either from the hot waters of the north or the cold waters of the south. In consequence, wherever it got them from, the water was always lukewarm. The hot had cooled, the cold had warmed up, the water no longer had the quality that it should have had, and it was in danger of being spat out. Is that you? Still following Christ, but after 15 months of intermittent lockdowns, worshipping your worldly idols alongside the Lord. And then in Revelation 2, there is the church in Ephesus. They'd started so well. They'd endured much suffering all along the way for Christ. But then they lost their zeal. They'd forsaken Christ, their first love. That's such a tragedy if that happens in a person's life. Christ's voice is gracious, but uncompromisingly firm towards them. Repent, come back to me, but come back with an undivided heart, he says, or the jealous God will remove your lampstand from its place. God's righteous jealousy is twofold. First, he continually seeks to protect his own honour. All worship in the universe belongs to God and only to God. His jealous zeal will spring into action to preserve that. 
So get rid of your idols. The, may the brilliant hymn words of William Cowper be our prayer. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. And second, God was jealous over Israel, his covenant wife. Jesus Christ is jealous over the church, his bride. He burns with holy zeal. He wants every part of you, body, mind, and spirit, undivided. He loves you. He died for you. You are no longer your own. You were bought at a price. So, as Paul writes, pull down the high places of idol worship in your heart. Demolish the strongholds of false thinking in your minds. And take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. God is jealous for you. Are you zealous for him?